Uh, last week was Friday. I was driving along, and uh, it was close to the, the sunset hours of Friday. As we're driving down, the sun's starting to drop in the sky. I have the family with me. We're running a couple last-minute errands. Went out from the backseat. I hear one of the girls yell, stop the car, stop the car, stop the car right now. Very emphatic. It's amazing in those, those moments as a parent, the split-second factor, how many different thoughts can go running through your head? How many different scenarios in a split second can pose right there in your mind thinking, what is happening? And so against the better judgment as a parent, I decided I would actually listen to the voice in the backseat and pull over in case one of those scenarios was actually happening. And as we pull the car over, next thing I hear is, a, is an audible gasp. But in that moment as a dad, I could tell that this wasn't actually a, uh, a bad gasp. This was like a gasp of splendor. And then I hear this young voice in the back say, oh, look at the sunbeams out there. I've read about these before. I've sung about these before, but I've never actually seen them before. And sure enough, as I look out the window, there at the, the front range, there's sunbeams cascading down from the sky into the mountains. And it was that clear moment, right, that there's nothing else that I need to say about my newness to the area. Moving from the Pacific Northwest, my daughter had never seen sunbeams before. It's an amazing thing. Uh, it's, been, it's been exciting uh, being new here, uh, being able to explore the, the area, to see things for the first time. It's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful place to be. And in uh, and, and that moment, it was this clear recognition that the last 13 years I've been pastoring an Oregon conference, which means that my children were born and raised in the Pacific Northwest where sometimes sun can be kind of a novelty. And so she was very excited to see sunbeams. Um, and I've been excited to, to be here and to get to know some of you, and we'll get to know you better and better as time goes on. So a couple of quick introductions. Most of you I've actually already met. For those of you that haven't, I'm new here. I'm the new family pastor, which means basically that anyone from high school age and below, I'll be working with them and their families, and there's a lot, it also means that there's a lot for me to learn as I am growing here. Uh, I have a, a family, as you probably know. Uh, Valerie is my wife. We've been married for almost 13 years, 13 years this winter, which means, means our marriage is becoming a teenager, which is really weird when people say that. I'm not sure why I said that. But our, we've been married for 13 years. Um, my oldest daughter, she's uh, Jocelyn. She's about to turn seven, seven going on 17. Aubrey is, uh, is five, and she is anxiously awaiting her first year of school at Vista Ridge Academy. We have the uniform. We are excited about it. And then there's Hudson, who, uh, who just turned one, and what can you say about a one-year-old? He's keeping us busy and exhausted and reminding us how valuable sleep is. But it's been a, been a neat thing. Now, the thing about being a parent, as many of you are well aware, is that you kind of have this continual battle with time. Because when you first have a kid, people come to you all the time, they say these words, watch out, your child is going to grow up in what? In the blink of an eye. And you have these people who, they're now empty nesters and they come up to you, hold on to every precious minute because your child's going to grow up in the blink of an eye, it'll be over. 
Now, the first year of life, I remember people saying this to me when Jocelyn was just this tiny little bundle, first month of having her. When people come up to you and say that in that moment, you kind of want to slap them. It's true. Because in that moment, you are not feeling that. You're not feeling like embracing every single moment. Because the moments are going on long enough as it is, especially at night. And so you're thinking, oh man, the blink of an eye, I wish, I wish it was in the blink of an eye. I wish it would go a little bit faster, but they say that to you nonetheless. And now here I am with the seven-year-old, the five-year-old, and the one-year-old, and I find myself saying the same obnoxious thing to new parents. Watch out, it's going to happen in the blink of an eye. Because the truth is that things have adjusted for me. Things have changed a little bit for me as my kids have gotten older. Well, I kind of, I've kind of auto-corrected to the opposite extreme end where you can ask my wife about this, I'm kind of obnoxious about it. I'm continually, continually worrying and stressing about the passage of time. I feel like time is my enemy. I feel like the kids are growing up too fast. And I feel that sense of, in the blink of an eye, they're gonna be out of here. I mean, understand here, my oldest is going into first grade. My youngest is just mastering the art of walking. I shouldn't really be panicking about that quite yet, but I am. I blame part of it for the last seven years of doing youth ministry because I think back over those seven years and how quick those years went by. And when I first arrived at Meadowglade Adventist Church, I arrived there and the kids who were Jocelyn's age are now in high school. And the kids that were in high school are now young adults. They have careers. Some of them are starting families. And so I continually think, in the blink of an eye, it goes so fast. Kids grow up. Yet at the same time, even though we wrestle with time, and even though we want to sometimes put the brakes on when it comes to time, we also embrace the growth of our kids. We embrace the growth of our kids. You see this when a parent has their firstborn child, because every single month, maybe even every single week in that first year of life, is tracked so carefully because they want to know that their kid is on target for the growth, for their development, where they should be in the particular month. And so they're tracking everything. Have they rolled over yet? Have they begun to have some kind of social interaction with me yet? Have they begin to, begun to crawl yet? Do, they, do their heads wobble too much? Are their heads secure? Are they how they should be? Have they started to pick up on language? Do they understand what you're saying? Do they have any words that they can say? And you're tracking every single one. And parents, you know this, that during this first year, especially with your firstborn, you are wringing your hands nervously. If you get to that doctor's appointment and they're going over the list of, has your child done this? Has your child done that? And if you miss just one of them, you're thinking, oh. I'm, we're messed up, we're behind, we're completely behind, things are going wrong, what's going to happen with the future of my child? We worry about it so very much. But then on the other side, if you happen to have a child, if you happen to be a parent that has a child that does things ahead of the curve, they happen to do thing before, things before it's projected when they're supposed to do it. God help us all because they will, you will, we will announce it to the world. You'll think that the child has like been accepted in some Ivy League school, right? But we just keep announcing it and we're so proud, we're so excited because we're concerned about the growth of our kids. We're concerned about their development being on track. And the same thing can be said with us in life in general, that we are actually concerned about growth. We're concerned about growth. Even after we've reached adulthood, we're concerned about our own growth. Maybe we've 
reached our limit vertically. We're not going to grow anymore physically, at least not any ways that we want to. But we, once we hit adulthood, we, we still want to see growth in our lives. We, we don't want to get to a place where we've plateaued and there's nothing left to develop. We want to continue to grow in our character. We want to continue to grow in our abilities. We want to continue to grow in the careers that we choose. We value growth. Yet at the same time, I wonder if sometimes we don't necessarily value spiritual growth. Why, why is it that we can be so concerned about growth in general? Why is it we can be so concerned about the growth of our children, the growth of ourselves, but we may not actually be concerned about spiritual growth? We may actually be very concerned about spirituality. We may make that a high priority in our lives. We may be concerned about whether our relationship with God is, is right. But the question is, have we changed any in our lives? Am I different today than I was when I first started following Jesus? Am I different today than I was last year, last month, last week? When we think about our walk with God, does our walk remain a constant does our walk plateau, or does our walk change? Is our walk dynamic? Is there some kind of growth that's connected to how we walk with Jesus? You know, there's a text. I'm going to have you turn to it. It's uh, Matthew chapter 13. And if you're using our Pew Bibles, it's, uh, it's page 564. I'm using the Pew Bible for a couple of reasons. One, so we can use the same Bible. The other is when I came out here visiting for the first time, I remember very specifically Pastor Japheth standing up here and saying, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one from the pews. And I was so impressed with that that when I arrived here, I realized I moved here without a Bible. What kind of pastor moves without a Bible? I didn't have a Bible. And I'm sitting here thinking, I can't be here without a Bible, so I took one from the pew. It's true. They don't charge you for it. They don't chase you down for it. So here it is. If you have the Bible, you can find it in the back of the pew, Matthew chapter 13 or page 5, I said 565, 564 is what we'll be looking at. Now, this is a parable. It starts with a parable. There's a series of parables in this chapter that we'll be looking at. But we're going to start with the first parable. And it's one that you've probably heard many times before, something that we're very familiar with. Yet I have to admit that as I look at this parable, in moments that I actually slow down and I think about what it's actually saying, in moments where I slow down and I think about what it's actually implying about how my walk with God should look, sometimes it kind of haunts me. Because sometimes I, I wonder in moments of honesty if this is actually what my life is like or whether my life is more static than what we find here in the text. This sets the context a little bit. We'll explore further in the future weeks here what's going on, but it sets the stage a little bit in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. You can picture this, the crowd's getting so tight, so pressing in so close, that he creates space by sitting in a boat, so he can continue to talk to them. And he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow. And he sowed some seeds that fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. 
Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. I want you to pause for a moment and pretend that you've never heard this parable before. Imagine these are the only words that you hear from Jesus, because this is the way Matthew sets it up. Matthew sets it up that Jesus is telling this story, and that's it. That's all there is to it. He that has ears, let him hear. Let him see. Just that's all you got. Go with that. And imagine sitting there hearing this for the first time, wondering what in the world is Jesus talking about? Is this a lesson in agriculture? Is there some kind of allegory I'm supposed to be picking up here, some kind of spiritual truth? If it is, do I know what it is? See, the great thing about when you read through the gospel is that you have the disciples. Because this disciples, in a lot of ways, are like, they're kind of like, the, they're kind of like that student in class who kind of asks the dumb questions that nobody else wants to ask. The teacher presents their lecture, and then that one kid raises his hand, and you know it's going to be kind of a dumb question, but secretly inside, you're glad for that kid because you're glad he's going to ask the question because then you don't have to ask the question. You don't have to be the one looking foolish. He takes it all for you. There's always that kid in that class. It's always a great thing to have someone like that who asks the questions nobody else wants to ask because time and time again, you read through the Gospels, and the disciples get to this moment where Jesus gives a teaching, and they're like, ah. I have no idea what he's talking about. And usually the pattern seems to be they wait for everyone to kind of go away because it's kind of embarrassing, and then they ask the question. And sure enough, that's what happens here. Verse 10, then the disciples come to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? Now, a quick little caveat here. They're actually not asking why do you speak in parables. What they're actually asking is, what are you talking about? If you go to, this, this same parable is told three times, once in Matthew, once in Mark, once in Luke. When you read the account in, in Mark, they ask the same question, but Jesus knows exactly what they're getting to, and he says, you still don't understand what I'm talking about? You still don't understand what I'm teaching? As if, like, how dense are you? And of course, we're all sitting there thinking, if I'm reading this for the first time, I, I, Jesus, I have no idea what you're saying. But then he goes on to say, if you can't understand this parable, how are you going to understand all the rest of them that will come after this? So no, when the disciples are asking this, they're actually trying to figure out, the real question is, what are you talking about? What is this about? Why do you keep speaking in these confusing ways? So Jesus answers them. And first he addresses why he's speaking in parables. He says this in verse 11. To you... It has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who is not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, their case, the prophecy of, of Isaiah, is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and in turn, I would heal them. But you, you disciples, your eyes, you're blessed, or blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, Many prophets and the righteous people longed to see what you see and did not hear it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now pause here for a moment. I think Jesus 
has just in, in response to the disciples, in answering their question of why do you teach in these confusing parables, has actually complicated things. If the parable wasn't clear, his answers to them is actually even less clear. He who has ears, like people seeing things and not, not actually seeing them, people having things that they can't hear, even though they hear them, like what, what is this about and what does this actually mean to me as the listener? Am I just simply doomed if I don't understand what Jesus is saying? Pause here for a second. We will come back to this. But first, let's go on to the application of the parable where he makes things clear. And we've, we know this only because we've heard it before. If we had never heard this before, I think all of us would be thoroughly confused about what this parable is about. He goes on to explain it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And this is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of, the, of riches chokes out the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Suddenly things start to look a little bit more clear about what this parable is about. It's actually a fairly simple, straightforward parable once you have the key to understand what Jesus is talking about. And the one thing that comes out fairly clear is that when we're talking about our walk with God, we should be expecting there to be a dynamic walk with God. We should be expecting that when we're walking with God, there is a growth that takes place, that our faith is an expanding one, that our faith is a changing one, that things look different over time because we should be the seed that grows. And when we're talking about plants, we expect our plants to grow. And if our plants aren't growing, then they are dying. And so when we look at this parable, the first thing's clear is that we should be seeking out a faith that's dynamic. We should be seeking out a faith that changes, a faith that's not staying the same. But we also see some of the keys to understanding why our faith doesn't always grow. And that's because there are detractors there. There are things that hinder our growth. The first one he talks about is probably the one that I'm least comfortable with. And this is the birds of the air that come down and they snatch the seed. And he goes on to explain that the birds of the air is who? It's the devil, right? I, I, I often don't, I, I get uncomfortable sometimes when we start talking about this supernatural experience. When we start talking about there being this evil spirit that's out there floating in the world. Because sometimes it's taken too far. Sometimes it gets a little bit weird. I remember when I first was a pastor, my first year, I arrived at church and there was this young kid who was fired up for Jesus. He had kind of had this backslidden life for a while, then he got back into the church, but got back into a different church. And I was doing, I think, a pastoral visit when he was just telling me, this book right here that I'm reading will change your life. You need to read it. And so he gives me this book, and it's a book on spirituality. And as I open it up, I start learning all kinds of things about how the devil's there ready to pounce on you, kind of like the Bible says, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But the thing about this book is it was almost as if you could catch the devil like you catch a cold. 
Right? If, you just weren't, if you just weren't careful enough, if you just weren't watching what kind of things got into your house, boom, the devil's right there and he's going to maybe possess you. And it was really kind of a scary read because you, if you have a book maybe that you innocently brought in with another pile of books that you didn't even know that book was there, you bring that book in, if it's a devil book, it's going to pounce on you and you may become led astray by that book, just from the presence of that book being in your house. And so a lot of times, this is the kind of thing that I think of, the thing I, I hear when I, when I hear people talk about spiritual warfare. And, and my, my preference is, probably based on where I grew up, America, is my, my preference is to have natural explanations. You know, like when you read through the Bible, and you, we were talking about this with the interns this week, when you read through the Bible and you come across a case of, of someone who's possessed by the devil, my natural instinct is to think, well, what else could that be? Like, what does that sound like in life right now? Maybe by possessed by the devil, we're actually talking about a natural case of epilepsy or, or who knows what. And, and today, so we would have another explanation for that if it happened in today's society. And I start to get a little bit uncomfortable with this idea of the devil being out there and the devil having these kind of impacts on our life. Yet at the same time, we have to recognize that the biblical perspective is that there is something else out there that there is an evil spirit, that we do have to think about spiritual warfare, that the devil is a, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, that we do wrestle with more than just flesh and blood, because that's what the Bible talks about. We don't catch it like a cold. But we do perhaps need to think about when we're, when we're looking at our life, when we're looking at our spiritual growth, perhaps we do need to think about whether or not the devil is present. Whether or not there's any kind of area that we're, we're allowing, knowingly allowing, something that's counterproductive into our lives. If there's a place where we've created a space that we don't guard carefully, and it's affecting our spiritual growth. But beyond that, there's also more talk, right? As you go through, there, there's, the, there's two other examples of growth that's, that's hindered. Um, one of which is the seed that falls onto the rocky ground. So you hear the word, and you immediately receive it with joy. But it's a faith that's not, that's not deep. It's a faith that doesn't have, doesn't have roots. It's a faith that's only there when life is going just so. When life is just right. And this, is a, this is another challenging one for me. Because I, th I think about the kind of life that I live, the kind of privileged life that we live here in this country. And I think sometimes it's hard for us to understand whether or not we actually have roots that go deep, to understand whether or not we, we really have a faith that endures through all things, or whether we're kind of a good weathered friend of God, where you expect God to come in and, and do things so that he blesses my life, so that he makes my life secure, he makes my life safe, he watches out for me. Think about the way that we pray. Think about the things that we say. It's often comfort prayers. God, keep us safe on this trip. God, be with me today. I don't even know what I mean when I say that, but I say it all the time. God, be with me today. Because I'm thinking that there's some kind of God fairy dust that sprinkles upon my day and makes it better. But does my day and my walk with God depend on whether or not everything works out just the way I want them to? Does my faith depend on whether or not God answers the prayers that I'm asking him to answer? Does my faith have roots? 
Does my faith have something that sustains me even when that harsh sun comes out and it begins to wither away at my life? And then, of course, there's the other one. That again, this is like, he's almost speaking to us as Americans in a way. Uh, as he talks about, there's also the, the weeds that choke out. And he says the weeds are the, the cares of the world. And I like this line, the deceitfulness of riches. Because often we find ourselves distracted by materialism. We find ourselves distracted by the things that we don't have, the things that we want, and we find that our faith wanes in the process. The interns and I are reading a book that, uh, that Pastor Jessica uh, got for us to read. It's called Garden City. And just this week, uh, we, the, the writer, the author, was talking about how sometimes materialism is so deceptive because we think we want something. We think we have that one thing that we need, but then once we do, it actually creates a thirst for something more. And he talks about this idea of every Christmas he ends up with this outfit dilemma where someone will get him something like, say, a pair of jeans. And once he has that pair of jeans, he's very excited because it's a pair of jeans better than any of the other jeans that he has. But once he has those pair of jeans, he recognizes he doesn't really have a pair of shoes that quite go with the jeans. So he finds himself going to the store to get the shoes that go with the jeans. And once he has the shoes, then there's the belt problem because he this guy's apparently very particular in his fashion. But he has the belt that he wants, and the shirt that goes with the belt, like, he wants the outfit to be just so. I don't really relate to the outfit dilemma, but I do relate to this idea that sometimes I think I want something, and once I get it, it's not enough. In fact, once I get it, it's actually created a thirst for something more, and I never actually find myself satisfied. And so we find ourselves in this perpetual state of wanting more, working harder to get more, and we never satisfy that thirst because our thirst is actually longing for something different. Our thirst is actually learning for a growth or yearning for a growth in Christ. And it's a growth that we sometimes don't experience because we're thirsting in a different direction. But here's my frustration with this parable. As I read through this and I, I look at the different types of soil, it almost seems like we may be doomed because some of us, it seems, the seed lands in the right kind of soil. But then others of us, we find ourselves landing in the good soil, the seed lands in the good soil, and that's where we're at. And the question becomes, do we have any choice about the kind of soil that we're living in? Do we have any kind of choice in whether or not we have the capability to grow in our spiritual walk with God? Have you ever had one of those friends who's just like a naturally spiritual person? Have you had that kind of friend? Like there's some friends, some people that I've come across in life who just seem to be naturally spiritual. Like everything just seems to be filtered through this God lens for them. And it just seems so easy. I don't know if it's actually that easy or if it just appears that way. But sometimes you come across this friend and it's just like they can see God working in everything. You can like almost hear the praise music just coming out of their head as they walk down the street. Um, they just, it's just all spiritual for, for them. It just seems to be so easy. But for others of us, it seems to be a struggle. For others of us, we want to walk with God. We want to know God. But we read the text and it seems empty. We say the prayer and it doesn't seem like it goes anywhere. We go through all the motions of what we think it means to live a religious life, but we don't feel the result coming from it. And this is the frustration I have with Jesus' answer, his first answer about the parable, because he gives this idea that there's some people out there that they hear things, but they don't actually hear it. That they see things, but they don't actually see it. And it sounds like we're completely stuck if we're one of those people who don't hear what Jesus is saying. Is there anything that we can do when we read the Bible and it doesn't speak to us? Is there anything that we can do when we listen to a sermon and we have no idea what the guy just said up front at the end? Is there anything that we can do when we pray 
And it seems like our, our prayers just hit the ceiling and they bounce right down. Are we stuck with the kind of soil where we land? Does the seed just land in the soil and there's nothing we can do about it? Is this some form of predestination where God simply has an elect that he's already chosen and then he has an elect that he, or an anti-elect, the ones that he's already condemned to damnation, there's nothing else that we can do about it? Or is there something that we can do about it? You know, one of the things that we have to look at when we're looking at the text is he's quoting from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. And uh, as we're, we're not going to turn right there right now, but as he's quoting from Isaiah, first of all, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all of them see this need to connect to the Old Testament. Once again, you see this throughout all the Gospels where they're trying to prove who Jesus is, prove that he is indeed the Messiah, and they're saying this right here is fulfilling that right now. And in Isaiah chapter 6, what we see is after Isaiah has been given this vision from God to go out and, and to be his word, he's also given this prophecy that his words are going to come back empty. He's given this idea that even though God's giving him these words to say, Israel has already chosen their path, and it's not going to work out well. And then we're making this tie-in so that when Jesus is saying this, he's saying just in the same way that as what happened with Isaiah, the same thing's happening right now. We're saying these words, but there's some people who just aren't going to get it. And in fact, when we look through the context of what's happening, we've just previously seen in the chapter before that there's a climax happening. There's a, there's a, there's a conflict underway where the, the religious leaders of his time are beginning to thoroughly, fully reject Christ and his message. They reject him as the Messiah. And you're seeing the tension beginning to build. In fact, this is why he begins talking in parables, most scholars think. They believe that it starts right now. There hasn't been parables before in Matthew, but right at this point, he begins speaking exclusively in parables because the conflict is developing in such a way that he needs to code his words a little bit so that he can exist for a bit longer so his ministry can continue before they actually decide to kill him off. And so as he's talking about this, he's talking in this context that there's already the religious leaders that have decided to reject him. And no matter what he says, they've already made their decision. They've already set themselves in stone and it's not going to change. I don't think he's saying that we don't have a choice in how we accept the message. We don't have a choice in, in how we process the words that God gives us. Perhaps there is, there is kind of a difference sometimes where there are some people where, or time, maybe even seasons in your life where you hear a message from God and it seems clear, it seems there, it seems like God's present. And there's other moments in life where it seems a little bit distant. But perhaps there's something that can be done. Perhaps there's something that we can do to hear God more effectively. There's a podcast that I like to listen to. It's, uh, it's called Radiolab. Has anyone ever heard of Radiolab? Don't start listening to it because I get like half of my sermon illustrations from it. So there's a, it's one of my favorite, favorite podcasts. And one of, uh, one of my favorite of the favorite podcasts, except for the Boulder. There's also a Boulder Adventist Church podcast. That's my favorite podcast. <laughs> Outside of that, there's also Radiolab. And so... Radiolab, one of my favorite ones, came out a couple years ago. It was a show about color. And there, there were several interesting things about it, one of which was that there's actually different types of people that we, we a lot of us perceive color differently. Um, there, there's, there's actually some people who can see way more colors than most of us 
can see. And, and it all comes down to the cones. So we're going to go back to basic elementary physical science, but we have the three types of cones in our eyes that allows us to see the three primary colors. When we have those functioning properly, when you have all three, then you're able to mix those colors appropriately, and you see various hues throughout the world. And the world is a very colorful world that you see. Um, at the same time, there are some of us who only have the two types. And they say for each type of cone that you have, it allows you to see 100 different hues. But when you have two cones, instead of just, if you only had one type of cones, you would only see 100 hues of that one type of color. If you have the, the second one, it's suddenly like mixing your primary colors. Well, now you have blues and yellows. You can mix them together. And now it's 100 times 100. You have 10,000 different types of colors in the world that's accessible to you. But if you're fully functioning properly with the three different types of cones, now it's 100 times 100 times 100. You have all the primary colors. Now, let's help me with the math here. 100 times 100 times 100 is? A million. 10 million. Is that right? This is awkward. This is when you should have done this first, before you get up on stage. But there are some people who have a fourth cone. And with that fourth cone, they have the ability to see even more variations in the color around them. And so basically, we're all born with our, our physical limitations of what kind of colors that we can see, with how much is accessible to us in the world around us. But beyond that, it's actually not just simply what we're born with, but it's what we use. Because there's a theory out there that our understanding of color, our, our visual of color, being able to see the color around us and the world around us is actually based on the language that we use. And so when they look through ancient language, they realize there's this in every language, there's this projection as you go through and you look through the different uses of the words, the colors that are used throughout time. It starts off with a smaller group of words, then it grows into a bigger group of words, and they begin to see more colors as they use the language for more colors. That doesn't make a lot of sense, but basically think of it this way. If I never had the word blue, perhaps I wouldn't see blue in the way that you see blue, in the way that I see blue. If I didn't have the word for blue, maybe I couldn't see blue. That's the theory that's out there. And it, it, this sounds real fishy at first, right? It doesn't sound like something that actually makes a lot of sense. It doesn't sound like something that's real. But then they started doing a study. They did a study with this tribe called the Himba tribe. I'm going to throw up a picture on the screen. This Himba tribe is in Africa. Namibia is the name of the country. And this group of people, they did this study, you can't see it real clearly in the picture, but they did this study where they would throw this image up on the computer screen. And as they look at this computer screen image, there's all these different squares of colors, and every single square is green, except for one, which is, can you see it? It's blue. And as they would put this uh, screen up for them to, to look at, they would ask them to simply identify the color that's different from the rest of the squares in the circle. Now, the thing is, is that the Himba tribe, they don't have a word for blue. So as they have this blue square up there, they haven't had the practice of looking for that color. They haven't had the practice of distinguishing this color from all the other colors that are out there. And time and time again, as they would put the screen up for the tribe, they would just look at it. They would study it. They would try to analyze it. They just simply couldn't see the blue that was on the screen. Go to the next slide right here. Here's a better one where you can actually see on the, on the right-hand side, the circle on the right-hand side. It, when we look at it as Westerners, ones who use that word blue continually in our language, we see it and the blue reaches out and it strikes us, right? You can see it immediately. You can't help but not see that color. Your eyes are immediately drawn to the blue because it's different than the green. Then there's the circle on the left. You see, the Himba tribe, they have some different words for colors that we don't use. 
They have a different word that distinguishes two different types of green that we don't use. And when they put that circle of greens on the slide, and they would ask them to distinguish which square was different. For them, it was like us looking at the blue. It would reach out and strike them. They could say it immediately. They knew exactly what it was. But can you tell which one is different? Can you see the difference in the color? I actually asked Pastor Japheth if I could have a, a laser pointer to show you which one was different, and then I realized, I forget. <laughs> I don't know which one's different. I can't tell for sure which square is different from all the other squares. You can take the image down. I wonder if our spiritual life is like this. Some of us have access to lots of different colors from the very beginning, colors that we've, some of us have never seen before. But others of us, we have to continually use the language to find the color. And the more we go through the process of naming the things that we see, the more we go through the process of seeing God, looking for God, identifying with God, verbally saying this is God in our life, the more the colors begin to open up for us. The more we begin to see things that at one time we couldn't see. The more we begin to actually grow in our journey with God. Sometimes we just need to practice the language. Sometimes we just need to put out that effort and say those things, to see those things, to search for those things that God is bringing in our lives. May you experience spiritual growth. May you search for a God, search for a faith that's ever expanding, ever growing, never plateauing, and may you persevere May you persevere when God seems distant, when God seems unavailable, when it seems as if he's a color you can't see. May you continually seek for him. May you continually name him. And may your world expand with opening colors.